This morning, as we continue our sermon series in Ezra and Nehemiah, Craig will actually be preaching from Haggai chapter 1. So in light of that, for our scripture reading, I'll actually be reading two portions of scripture. I'll first read Ezra chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 to give us context, and then following those two verses, read Haggai chapter 1 for us. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I might take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. This is God's word. You may be seated. Craig Cody and one of the elders here. I do want to welcome you, especially those of you who are um, here for the first time to Christ Community. We're thankful that you've joined us this morning. We are con- continuing our series through Ezra. Um, this obviously is not the book of Ezra that we're looking at today. 
It's a little jaunt to the right. It's obviously very connected, as we read in that little section there in Ezra 5, verses 1 and 2. And, and it, Ezra 5 is the context. But I wanted to take just a little excursus, a little journey um, on a side path to get to know Haggai and his message, which he was proclaiming to the people in Israel at that time. Um, in Ezra 5, we encounter two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. Um, I thought about doing Zechariah. We may end up circling back to it, but for now we're just going to stick with Haggai. But their job is to support the work of God in rebuilding the temple. We're going to look at Haggai specifically for the next two weeks, so this weekend next. Um, but even as I was even as I was driving here this morning, I was just talking to my kids out loud. This is a message that goes down deep to the heart. Um, it's actually one of the main exhortations of Haggai, what we just read. Consider your ways. I still feel like I'm considering my ways. I still feel like I'm, even in my own heart, as I'm standing before you right now, I feel like this message has more work to do in my own heart. So I hope you hear me, even as I'm teaching this to you. It's also being preached to me, too. And it's a work that God is going to hopefully continue to do, not just now, but in the days ahead, too. I do trust that God's work will God's word will do good work in our hearts. So let's ask him to do that. Let's ask him for help right now. And then I'll give you a little context. We'll dive in. Lord, I am so grateful for your word. I'm grateful for it because it is grace to us. You tell us what is true despite what we may feel. You correct what is wrong. You set uh, crooked paths straight. You bind up broken hearts. You heal wounds through your word. You create things through your word. And Lord, we're just asking you to do all of that in us right now. Help us, Lord, to love the right things, to have the right priorities, to love you first above all else. What a tall task. We need your spirit. Come now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me get you situated in the story, okay? Let's get our bearings in what's going on in, in Ezra. And again, we're, a lot of this is a recap. Um, I think it's important just to get the context as we're, as we're going through things. The kingdom of Israel, meant to be a light of the world, of the glory of God to all the nations, turned away from God and trusted in other gods, ma- mainly other kingdoms. This is a tendency, of course, of all humanity uh, to turn away from God and to trust in self. The rejection of him led to a split in the kingdom. You remember Scott giving a little bit of a recap last week. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. In 722 BC, this is all history, uh, the northern kingdom was effectively wiped out by an invading Assyrian army. Those people, the Assyrians, stuck around. They intermarried with the Israelites who were there. Again, this is the northern kingdom. They intermarried with the Israelites who were there and became the opposition that Scott talked about last week that we saw in Ezra chapter 4. The southern kingdom lasted a little bit longer, but in 605 BC, so the numbers are coming down, because this is before Christ, after many calls from prophets to repent and turn to God, in 605 BC, Babylon came in and conquered them, the southern kingdom. They tried to hang on longer, they tried to stage an uprising in 587 BC, but Babylon crushed them, And took many of them to captivity in Babylon. The prophet Jeremiah at that time said, 
It's going to be 70 years. Other prophets said it's only going to be a short time. Only going to be a short time. But it wasn't true. Jeremiah was right. 70 years. 70 years is a long time. After 70 years, most of those who were alive when they first went off into captivity, if you just think about it, do the math, they're dead. And those who were alive after 70 years, the vast majority of them would have been born in captivity. Babylon is home. Jerusalem, as a vibrant city and a center for worship of the one true God, that probably seemed to them a distant memory, something that was important, something that they heard about, but it felt so far away, both in the heart and just practically speaking, a thousand miles away. Yet, by the sovereign hand of God, this is what we looked at already, as Jeremiah prophesied 75 years, I'm sorry, 70 years later, Persia, another empire, came in and conquered the unconquerable, Babylon. And King Cyrus, the king of Persia, the most powerful man in in the world at that time, told Israel, go home, go back to Jerusalem and build the house of your God. And it all goes back. All of it. Pots and pans, specific people. It's that list in Ezra 2. Because God, it all goes back because God is a real God who fulfills real specific purposes Fulfills really specific promises with really specific purposes for really specific people. That's what he does. He's a real God who works in real life. He fulfills those real promises for us. These returnees take the 1,000 mile journey back. They put down their bags. And what is the first thing that they do? They could have set up their defenses. They could have established an economic system. Even their ability to live. There's a lot of logistics to take care of. But they worship. It's the first thing they do. They set up the altar. They get to work right away, rebuilding the temple of the living God. And it climaxes in this big worship service in Ezra 3. Surely that temple is going to be built in no time. And Jerusalem would just soar right off, straight line up to a bright future. Nothing stood in their way. But it wasn't that easy. The people, again, that had mixed with the Assyrians and live in that area who now worship God, but not according to his word, they set out to oppose the work of God, which was to rebuild his temple there. And here's what we read last week in Ezra 4. So this is Ezra 4, 4 and 5. Again, we're just getting the context here. It's really important. Ezra 4, verse 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So this opposition, their efforts to stop the building of the temple, it succeeded. The last verse of Ezra 4 says this. This is Ezra 4, verse 24. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, we talked about this last week. The chronology of that passage of Ezra chapter 4 can be tricky to follow, but according to the things that I researched, they stopped building. So Ezra chapter 4, verse 24, when they stopped building, till whenever they started again, they stopped for about 20 years. 20 years. 
Again, that's not a short amount of time. What happens in 20 years of your life? Some of you aren't even 20 years old. Especially considering that they came there with such fanfare and zeal. They came in town, they were ready to worship, and they put on a throwdown worship ceremony. Shouting, trumpets. They were ready to build. They had their priorities in the right place. But then 20 years, nothing happens as far as the temple goes. And it's at the end of this 20-year pause, at this moment in Israel's history, that God sends Haggai, this guy that we're looking at today. So what were they doing during those 20 years? What was happening? Nothing? Well, Haggai gives us some insight, what we read in our passage today. If you look at Haggai chapter 1, starting at verse 6, we get a little window into what they were doing during that 20-year break. Haggai chapter 1, verse 6. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. It looks like they're doing everyday stuff. Farming, making clothes, buying and selling things, earning wages. In verses 4 and verses 9, Haggai talks about the houses that they're building. But, but, it's been tough. The farming hasn't gone well, and it's in large part due to the weather. Did you catch that? We can look at that real quick. Haggai chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and so forth. It's tough. The weather isn't cooperating. Things aren't working. I want to, I want to talk about those paneled houses for a second, though. When At first glance, when I looked at the paneled house line, my impulse was to think that what Haggai was addressing in the people, what these people were doing, was that they were living in luxury and excess. But that's actually not the picture here. That's not what's going on. What is happening for these people is that hard labor this is blue-collar work, sweat-of-the-brow work. And the weather problem only makes that worse. It's hard. It's difficult. It's tough. That's what life is like for them right now. Plus, their new neighbors are opposing them rebuilding the temple. And on top of that, the work that they do, that they actually do do, that's very difficult, it's so frustrating. It's not yielding what they think it should. It's like putting money into a bag with a hole in it, and it just drops out. So, 20 years, not building the temple. I mean, just look around. Who could blame them for that? Who could blame them for not building the t- temple under those circumstances? And so, what was the people's prevailing sentiment of the time? We actually see that in verse 2. Look at verse 2, Haggai chapter 1, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. God, we really want to get, we really want to get there. We really do want to build the temple. But man, 
Things are just hard and they're busy right now. I, I, I will get to it. I just, need, I just need a little more. I need a little more money. I need a little bit more food. I need a little bit more stability. I need a little bit more. It's just not the right time. They neglected the house of the Lord. They neglected the work that the Lord had given them to do. Because they felt like they just needed a little bit more. I know that um, nearly all of us, if not all of us, who call ourselves Christians, and especially those who consider this our church home, want Christ's community to flourish. We want to see every person in this church, from the cradle to the grave, built on the word of God. We want the people to flourish. We want to see every person growing in Christ. We want to see the gospel going to new places in the city and around the world. We want to see singles and kids and marriages and families strengthened and growing. We want to see people come in here and encounter Jesus and the power of the gospel. We want to ourselves, we want to give ourselves to this work in every way. Time, money, effort. I believe that. But I, I think if we're honest, we can all resonate with the Israelites, what they're experiencing here on some level. We want to give ourselves to the work. We want to give ourselves to what God has for our lives. But not right now. Maybe not fully. These times are tough. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We're trying to save enough money so that we'll finally be ready to really give or really serve the church. I just need a little bit more time here or a little bit more time there. And once I get past that, then I'll really be able to serve. I'm working hard, but I'm just not there yet. Just, just not yet. There's just not enough yet. This is the work that I was talking about at the beginning. I feel like God is still working on my heart in this too. God has a word for us. He has a word for me. He has a word for us as his people, just like he did for the Israelites. He sends Haggai, he sends this prophet of God, a man who speaks the word of God to them in the midst of their struggles and setbacks, in the midst of their difficulties and disappointments, in the midst of feeling like they just don't have enough, in the midst of their outright opposition. That man comes in and he rebukes them. Haggai's message is this. This is summarizing uh, verses 1 through 11. You think you don't have enough. You think you don't have what you need. But yet, in the midst of all those challenges, you built yourself paneled houses. Again, I don't think that's about them pursuing worldly treasure. That's a different sermon. This is about disordered priorities. This is about disordered loves. God's rebuke is this. Your house is more important to you than my house. And I'll tell you, God is saying to them, I'll tell you why it's been so hard. Why there are holes in the money bags. Why you can't reap what you've sown. Why the wine and the oil are running out. 
why the weather stinks. It's hard because I did it. I made it hard for you. And honestly, when I read that, my reaction was, that sounds really harsh. Why would God hit them when they're down? Why would he, in the midst of the difficulties, the opposition, the rebuilding a city from the rubble, make it even harder to do what he commanded them to do by withholding good weather and and even just a basic level of prosperity from them? Here's what I want us to see. What, What seems harsh at first glance is actually incredible grace. God is giving them what they really need. And what they really need is a change of heart. God knows that if he would let them continue as they are, they would keep saying, just a little bit more, and then it will be time. Just a little bit more, and then it will be time. Just a little bit more, God, and then we can really get down to business. God wants to recalibrate their hearts. He wants to reawaken their priorities. Because, remember, it's a reawakening. It's not a first time awakening. It's a reawakening. They came ready to work. They came ready to worship. They need to have their hearts stirred again to the right priorities. God wants to empower them to be about the work of his kingdom and his purposes. So what does he say? Twice in this passage, Haggai says to the people, consider your ways. That's verses 5 and 7. The people of God need to consider. Literally, the translation is to set their heart on their ways. And then God tells them what to do. Verse 8. Read that with me. Verse 8. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. The waiting game is over. God is done waiting. Go get the wood and get to work because you have everything you need. And what happens next is astounding. That's what God rebukes them with through the mouth of Haggai. And then how do they respond? It's astounding to me because it seems so rare. It seems so rare in the pages of scripture. It seems so rare in my own heart. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. They all obeyed. All of them. 21 days from the time that Haggai issues the rebuke to getting back to work. It's incredible. A total change of heart. But what's, what's especially sweet here, and I don't want us to miss this, is this isn't just a, a surface level religiosity or, or like a peer pressure moved event. It was truly a change of the heart. It's at the end of verse 12. I left it off. It says this. The people feared the Lord. It's a change of heart. That's repentance. There is... There is such joy and freedom and life for you, for me, in repentance. 
Do you see that? Do you see repentance as grace in your life? As Christians, as people who have trusted in Christ, we've been given an incredible gift to actually turn away from sin and turn to God. This is an incredible gift that we could, we could not have apart from Christ. We have the spirit of God in us. We are no longer slaves to sin. Sin no longer has dominion over us. They repent. What's repenting? What's being repented of here? What's being changed in their heart? And I talked about it earlier. It's what Augustine calls disordered loves. That's what was rebuked. That's what was called out. That's what was driving their actions. That's what's being corrected here. It's not that they didn't love God. They did. They did love God. They traveled 1,000 miles trusting his steadfast love. That's what they sang about when the temple foundation was laid. They built the altar. They joined in the worshiping throng. They praised his name. They loved him. They loved God. But somewhere along the line, despite their zeal and commitment, they lost the order of their loves. Augustine, who I mentioned earlier, one of the, he's one of the early church fathers. He wanted to figure out why most people are discontent and therefore without joy. His answer to this question was this. Our loves are out of order. He observed that our loves have an order to them. That we love, that what we love can often, we can often switch the order of those loves. We can put the less important loves as more, as giving that more love and the more important things as having less. Augustine said that this disordered love is the essence of sin. What's another way that the Bible describes this? Idolatry. We take something that is not primary and make it primary. We take the less important and make it the most important. We make it a God. We make it God. And here's the insidious thing about disordered loves. And we see it in the lives of the Israelites here. We can think that we have properly ordered loves. Remember, they traveled and they sacrificed and they worked and they gave because they trusted God. He was primary, right? But somewhere they had lost it. They had lost their first love. God went from primary to somewhere further down the list. And what became of their lives? Frustration. Brothers and sisters, Christ community, I hope you're tracking with me. If we live lives with disordered loves, we will live a life of frustration. We'll put money in the bag and the money will drop out. We'll go to reap a harvest and we won't get enough. We'll go to tap the wine barrel and there's nothing in there. We will live a life constantly striving for joy, for security, for peace, for the next thing, for the next balm of the soul, the next relationship, the next episode of your favorite show, the next drink, the next trip, the next promotion, the next paycheck. It's never enough. The command to to these Israelites, to the returnees, was consider your ways. Place your heart on your ways. Think carefully about your ways. So how do we know whether or not our loves are disordered? 
Alfred Adler said that the best way to discern disordered loves is to ask yourself, what, ask this question, what, if absent, would take away my reason to live or steal my joy? If I lost fill in the blank, then I couldn't go on. What's fill in the blank for you? Could it be people or power or pleasure or prosperity? This is a huge topic. Books written about this. Tim Keller is excellent on this. He said that if you pull up your disordered loves, you pull up your idols, you will find your fears clinging to the roots. What are you afraid of? What are you really afraid of? The reason for that, the reason that it's so tightly wound to our fears is that your idols cluster around the pain you've experienced in your life and are your feeble attempt, our fleshly attempt, to bring guaranteed safety and control into your life. God offers you something so much greater. Jesus offers you True peace, true freedom, true love. What you actually seek offers you enough, more than enough. God, through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is calling you to find the safety, security, peace, and love that you seek in the only one that can give it himself. God is calling his people. He's calling his people Israel there in Ezra 5. He's calling us Christ community here today back to our first love, to our primary love, to himself. Look at what God, look at how he does this. Look at how he does this for for Israel in verse 13. He doesn't just say, hey, hey, get it straightened out. Get your order, get your loves ordered back right. He doesn't just tell them what to do in anger and then walk away. And I know many of you have been treated that way by people in your life. He doesn't just shame them. You're such a bunch of screw-ups. Get to work. Build the house. That's not what he does. That is not your heavenly father. He is the one who gives them his word and then enables them to keep his word. He sent Haggai to be his mouthpiece, to draw them back to himself. And instead of withdrawing from them in that moment of sin and the shame that sin causes them, look at what he does. God draws close, verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. I think sometimes we can get stuck in our heads, at least I should be. We can get stuck in our heads and in our hearts. This notion that God is repulsed by us in the moments of our sin. That he is repulsed when we feel the weight of, of how we brought shame upon him, shame upon ourselves, shame upon others. And we can think that whatever the sin is, he recoils from our sinfulness like he's touching a dead mouse. I don't want to get But what I want you to see here and and press into all of our hearts today is God is doing the exact opposite here. He is not recoiling. He is not looking upon their sin, their rejection of him, 
They're choosing other things above him and rejecting them. He is not doing that. He is pursuing people who sinned against him. He draws near to them. He is not repulsed. I cannot, as I was writing that, I could not help but think of our study through the Gospel of Mark. How did Jesus, God in flesh, how did he respond to people with disordered loves? How did he respond to sinners? He drew near. Dane Ortland said this, the cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, the disordered loves, the people who have rejected him, when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward, toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. Jesus manifested most fully the heart of God toward his people and his impulse. Every time he saw sinners and sufferers, those who were sorrowful in their own sin, in their own shame, his impulse was not to recoil. It wasn't Israel, go figure that out. Get your life together. He came toward us. He comes toward you in your sin, in your shame. In your darkest moments. That's who he is. That's what he did in the gospel. The circumstances of the returnees, the Israelites, did not change here. Nothing really changed. It's just 21 days from the time that Haggai said, said listen to the Lord. To the time that they started rebuilding the temple. The opposition remained. The harsh conditions remained. The needs of their families and their neighbors remained. But they remembered who God is. A promise-keeping God who prepares a table for them in the presence of their enemies. In the presence of the enemies that all surrounded them, God said, come, be with me. I'm going to pour you a drink. He gives them everything that they need. Whose presence was not only present with them, but also active, not present, not only present with them, but also active in them. Look at verses 14 and 15. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of, pe- of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of their, of the, uh, the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And on the 24th day of the month, the sixth month, in the, in the second year of Darius the king, I slaughtered that, but you get the point. The spirit of God was stirred up inside of them. God didn't just say, go and get it done. He, he used his spirit. He stirred their spirits to get to work. Their disordered loves became ordered loves. They put God first. And they got busy with the Lord's work, empowered by his very spirit that was at work in their hearts. They began building again. So brothers and sisters, the explicit command of this passage to us is to consider your ways, to think carefully about the way that we live. We need to heed that. We need to listen to that. We all need to hear that today. No matter what you're facing or what you're experiencing in life, we need to think carefully about our lives. Whose house are you building? What is your highest priority? What is your first love. I would encourage you, yes, in these next few moments together, the time of communion is always an excellent time to reflect on our own hearts. 
to consider not only what the Lord has done, but our own hearts. But maybe even later on today or this week, taking some time with the Lord, taking some time with, with someone else to lay your life before the Lord in prayer, asking him to search your heart. But I, I, I don't want you to forget this either. God has a promise to those who turn to him. He gave a promise here. I will be with you. Brothers and sisters, God drew near to us. We didn't draw near to him first. He drew near to us first. And he came in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus laid down every resource he had. Every comfort that he had. And he dwelt among us. His loves were ordered perfectly. He loved God perfectly. He always prioritized things rightly. So bending to help a blind man or a touch to heal a woman's bleeding or pulling a child into his arms. His priorities reflected God's priorities. That is God's heart. That is his heart. But his greatest priority was to give everything away. Give his life so that we could be made rich with the riches of heaven. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's the grace that we need. That's the grace that we need in hearts with disordered loves. He became our ordered love for us. So that now we can have right ordered loves. Ask the Lord to guide you. The temple of Ezra was built for the glory and the pleasure of God. And now we, God's spiritual temple, his temple, are being built for the glory and pleasure of God. Yes. Built for the glory and pleasure of God. But there's more than that. God has given you a part to play in that. A part to play in building this house of God, the church, and being part of this church together. And you know what? When you live for that, when you live for him, when he is your greatest love, you will find that you have more than enough. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm just calling out to you to please Please help us all to consider our ways. Where we have disordered loves, where I am out of whack, where I am not believing what is true about myself or about you or about whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you would set it right. Where I have idols in my hearts, what am I afraid of, Lord, that I haven't laid before your throne? Lord, you have done everything for me, Lord Jesus. You have taken our sin and our shame. You have given us everything that we need. And if we, you, if we have you, we have all that we need. Oh, Lord, help us to see. Give us eyes to see. Do your good work in us. Now, do your good work in us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.